Welcome to Shaky Sports Journeys. Thanks again for joining us. Um, great guest for you today. Uh, somebody who has done some fantastic things um, in the Paralympic uh, world and has, has also uh, achieved medals personally as a Paralympian. So it's it's going to be great, great to great to talk to this gentleman. Um, I'm talking about Tim Reddish, CBE. How are you, sir? I'm very good, thank you. Thank you for thank you for giving me your time. Um, what I want to do is take you on a bit of a journey today. Uh, so you know, getting your imagination woken up uh, first thing in the morning. I hope you've had your coffee. Um, but I want to take you back to your childhood. Tell me a little bit about your family background, your childhood, where you grew up, etc. Well, I I still live in the great city of Nottingham, and I was born in Nottingham. I was premature born. Uh, less than two pounds. So that was in 1957. So I had a a challenging start to life because most babies that were less than two pounds born at that time of the uh, uh, the era we're in um, didn't survive. So there was something inherent there from day one that I'm going to be a survivor. Little did we know how much of a survivor I'd need to be. So I was premature born, eldest of five children, urban street kid, dysfunctional family, and at times I was abused. Um, my dad liked his beer. My mum did occasionally as well. So we were a bit of a dysfunctional family and it was challenging, eldest of five. So I looked after my brothers and sisters best I could. Uh, there was a 13 year gap between me being the eldest and uh, my youngest sister, uh, who was 13 years. So from that point of view, it, it was it was interesting. It's in growing up in the 70s with uh, uh, Things like the old uh, three-day working weeks and strikes and uh, um, inflation very, very high. It was it was challenging, but little did I know how that would prepare me for the future. Well, you had to grow up at a very, very young age, Tim. Uh, you never really had much time uh, to, to progress into adulthood. It sounds like you were, by the age of 12, 13 already, you know, going into, going into adulthood. But you're right, it must have set you up for the challenges that, that you faced ahead, but more power to you. You're obviously a very, uh, very, very strong person, uh, mentally, physically, um, and it's, 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 it's inspiring. When did your sporting interest start? Swimming strikes me as something you were interested in from quite young. Yeah, I was, I was very fortunate because my dad was, uh, my dad was in the forces uh, when I was uh, a youngster. So I actually learned to swim at the age of five out in uh, Hong Kong when my dad was based out there because um uh, the good thing about being out there, it was too hot to go to school or nursery or anything in the afternoon. So um, um, I used to get the opportunity to go around to the local swimming pool at the barracks. So uh, I learned to swim there. So swimming became good for me because I, I'm I'm not the tallest person in the world. Um, I'm probably a little bit gobby and a little bit lippy. And the one thing I was always good at, regardless of how big my uh, friends were at school, was swimming and sport. So swimming enabled me to... Uh, to really shine, I suppose, to, to give me that bit of self-belief in myself, because obviously uh, 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 when you're the eldest of five and in the area we're in and, 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 and the schools I went to, they, they, uh, uh, they, weren't, they weren't the easiest times, but, but it gave me that little bit of self-belief and confidence. You, you, what did you go on to do at kind of university? Did you go to university? No, well, interesting. I, I started work uh, as a as a paper boy and a Saturday lad, a uh, butcher's, from the age of twelve. So I've worked since the age of twelve, and and part of our challenge was that 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 whatever we earned, fifty percent went into the family pot, 
those of us that are old enough remember the old bread series from the from Liverpool, where whenever you earned anything, 50% went in the family pot. So even from the age of 12, whatever I earned, 50% went in the family pot. So I'd always work. So I left school as soon as I can because um, I needed to help the family and, and my brothers and sisters. So I never went to university. Uh, I, I don't know whether I'd have enjoyed it. I, I think I would, but but we didn't have the opportunity. So I left school and um, became an apprentice, which I think apprenticeships are absolutely fantastic. So I, I'm, I, I can say now I'm the only qualified blind butcher in the world because I became an apprentice butcher. <laughs> Working, working from a very, working from a very young age, um, you know, you served an apprentice would have set you up nicely, I'd imagine, for what you were going to go on to do. But I look at your, um, I look at your CV, and you were involved um, in sport pretty much from a young age um, in your working career as well. You, you, you were a manager of a of a leisure centre. Yeah, well, what happened was, I, 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 I. When I was a youngster, I was a competent swimmer. I swam nationally as an age grouper, so so I was a competent swimmer. And then, um, as you say, I, I became a butcher and then I dabbled a couple of things and then became a, a, a swimming teacher by chance. An opportunity came along that I grabbed, so I became a swimming teacher and a coach and then ended up being a facility manager. So I got that opportunity, and during that time I was coaching and I was uh, enjoying, enjoying the different types of uh, leisure facility management that came in so I had varied life as a job it was a little old-fashioned swimming pool with the old cubicles down the side and I loved it but it was fantastic one day I'd be raking an old boiler out another day I'd be doing water treatment another day I'd be showing people round and things like that so it was a very very uh, um, great life for me at that time I thought I enjoyed it so did you enjoy the coaching element you obviously enjoyed the individual side of the sport where you were swimming, but you seemed to take to coaching at quite a young age. Was that something that just came naturally to you or, or something you just wanted to give back to the sport? It, it was giving back because I, I started off, as I say, as a swimming teacher. So I used to work between 30 and 40 hours a week teaching youngsters to swim from local schools and also then with, with swimming lessons after school and also on a Saturday morning. The class. And, and, and it's interesting, somebody asked me recently, out of all the things I've done, what would you wish to go back and do again? And that's teaching swimming. The, the, the satisfaction you get from, from somebody who are having that, not so much fear, sometimes it's fear, but that raw, uh, unexpected, experienced uh, nervous challenge of coming into water and then you making them safe in water and then you make them competent in swimming for me was uh, an absolute fantastic reward for me because it, it gave me so much so it was a way of giving back and and even to this day um, I can go into in, into Nottingham to the city centre and somebody will come up and say hey up Tim I want to introduce you to my children because you taught me to swim and, and I still talk about you now. and We've followed you since you've lost your sight. So, so it's really, really good that, and it was something I loved doing. And then the coaching, and then facility management, and then other things came along later that that, that built on from that. You um, you had uh, had uh, something that happened um, in your life when you were thirty one. Um, I'm going to call it R R P, um, and you can you can uh, shed some more light on that. Um, you mentioned um, lo- loss of sight that you that you faced, but please, can you explain to the viewers a little bit more about RP? Well, it was interesting. In in um, uh, um, just before my thirty first birthday, um, my wife came home from work, and she um, she'd met uh, a cousin, 
and the cousin said to her, how's Tim doing? Fine. Is he okay? Yeah. Does he, does he bump into things? Yeah. Yeah. Is his sight all right? Does he bump into things at night? She goes, well, yeah, but we all do that. Yeah. Oh, I need to tell you that, that we found out that there is a, a genetic hereditary condition, eye condition in the family that nobody knew about. So my wife had to then come home and try and uh, sit me down and talk to me and say, Hey, I'm sorry, mate, but you, you might be going blind here. So, we, we had to go through all the processes and the diagnosis. So on my 31st birthday, um, this consultant said to me, yes, Mr. Reddish, you do have retinitis pigmentosa. Um, it's hereditary, it's genetic, um, and there's no cure. And you, you're going to go blind. Now, that, that was back in uh, 1988. Uh, and it was still new then uh, as, as, as a condition. I had two sons. So it was a bit of a scary time. I'd got a, a five and a half year old and a seven year old. So for us, it's a bit of a challenge. And, and the seven year old at the time, you actually know, is my, my eldest son, Paul. So for us, it was a big challenge. So the scary thing was, in those days, the males were still uh, predominantly hunter warrior. Both my wife and I worked. Um, I was a leisure facility manager. Uh, we, I'm thinking, God, what's going to happen here? Cause, because there was a huge stigma even, even then. In, in the late 80s towards disability and in particular blindness we had some major challenges we couldn't get a mortgage because we couldn't get insurance and all those types of things so it was a huge huge challenge to us to to adapt and change but i think we did okay that that mental toughness and that resilience from that young age and that that street kid stuff i think that helped us my wife was absolutely fantastic in in, in just saying well we just got to deal with it let's just get on with it how quickly does uh, when 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 you're diagnosed? How quickly does your sight actually go completely? Was it over time? Yeah, it was. It, I was losing sight um, um, every year. It was. It, what happens is with this retinitis pigmentosa RP is it's it's like a tunnel vision. So it's like looking through uh, to start with maybe a smarty tube, and then that vision closes. So you, you, your outside vision closes in, and you might have a little bit of central vision, and you have night blindness because uh, your, your your rods don't work because they're blacked out. So so I had all these challenges where this 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 vision was was closing in, uh, and. I say it took seven years, but most of the people around me said it took six years. I just wouldn't accept it for the for the final year. So, and eventually for me, it closed down. I had a secondary problem as well. So I had I went from from riding a motorbike one day to to six years later being having having no functional vision whatsoever. That's a you know it's a, it's, it's 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 sad sad to sad to hear about. Um, but what amazes me with you. Tim, and when I look at your your story and, and look at your journey, is what you managed to achieve after being diagnosed um, with, with RP. What gave you the, you, you talk about a very supportive wife, and um, you've talked about, you know, the fact that you had two young sons who I'm sure drove you as well. Uh, but what, what made you turn to being a Paralympian? When did that crush, when did that come about? Well, it came back fairly quickly because... Um, at the time, I'd been working with one, uh, an Olympic swimmer. I was co-coaching an Olympic swimmer. And two, um, the year before and also that year, I'd been working with um, a national disability swim team. It wasn't even called para swim team then. It was a disability swim team. And, and, and they used to come in and use my facility. I'd let them in uh, 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 when we closed to the public. So they'd come in and train and things like that. So, so I'd, 
I'd got some experience and exposure, but didn't understand it that well. So, so this this swimmer who I was co-coaching um, qualified for the Olympic Games in Seoul in 1988, and and she came back. And her name is Maggie Kelly, and uh, she came back and gave me her commemorative medal from Seoul Olympic Games. And she said, "Tim, here's my commemorative medal." She said. Paralympics were straight after us. You, you, you ought to give that a go because you, you're not a bad swimmer. Because I was still swimming occasionally just to enjoy uh, uh, swimming. And I did other sports as well. And I said to her, I was too old and too slow. And she, she twisted my arm and said, I want you to go to Barcelona in 92 Paralympic Games and give me your commemorative medal. So I proudly have her commemorative medal and she proudly has my commemorative medal. So we're... Um, we, that was what sort of like gave me the catalyst. And then I just, I just literally got on with it, just said, I've got to make this happen. And, and my, I'm a big believer in life that, that if you want to do something, you, the, the, you, you've got to make it happen yourself. It's no good relying on anybody else. You've got to be accountable and, and you've just got to get out there and make, just do it. And, and, and if you fail, it doesn't matter. You should never be afraid of failure, but you'll never forgive yourself if you don't try it because you'll never know whether you've failed or not. And, and, and that was good for me. Fortunately, I had great, great support from family. They're the ones that make the sacrifices. Athletes don't. I don't like it when I hear athletes say they make sacrifices. They don't. It's a great life being an elite athlete. Absolutely fantastic. You work hard, but it's a great life. It's not a sacrifice. It's a choice. And, and your family and friends and your work colleagues, they're the ones that make the sacrifices because they bend over backwards to help you and make these things happen. And, and it was interesting when I had the bad times, it was actually my two sons that kept me going. They, they were the ones, if, if my performances were bad or I'd come home from training and I'm wrecked and everything else, I'm saying, I don't know why I'm doing this. It, it was my sons that pushed me because they, they, they enjoyed their sport as well and they were pretty good as well. So they, they, they're the ones that helped me keep focused in those early times when it was hard. Tell me about some of your achievements in the pool. I mean, you achieved, a, a, when I'm looking at your CV, I mean, there must be an impressive, I hope, you know, Trophy cabinet um, and the reddish and the reddish household because there's quite a few medals that were achieved along the way. But can you tell me about some of them? Yeah, well, when you say trophy cabinet, it's a carrier bag in the attic. <laughs> but but that's just us. It's just the way we are. Um, well, the journey was interesting because I started off not sure where I'd be or whether I'd be good enough actually for the Paralympic Games. So uh, uh, what was good as well is I trained. Eventually, started training with um, Nova Centurion which was the uh, uh, local squad, the, Nash, uh, the, the, the Nottinghamshire squad for swimming. And, and, and I was the first disabled person that was fully integrated into that squad. And my coach then was a guy called Bill Furness, who I've got the ultimate time and respect. He's now the head coach of the Olympic swimming program. So he, he's responsible for making that happen within the uh, Olympic movement. So, so I went there and, and not sure. So my biggest challenge was qualifying for Barcelona. So when I qualified, that was an absolutely fantastic achievement for me. I just thought, I'm there. I'm on the team. I can't let this opportunity go. So I went to Barcelona and I was very, very proud and privileged to represent, one, the nation and two, my, my city and my county and everything else. And I came back with a bronze and silver medal. So that was great. And what was interesting then, when we came back from Barcelona, um, we came back and there was uh, the only people that knew about it me was my local paper 
my wife, my two kids, my family and my guide dog. They're the only ones that really knew about it. And the BBC did an hour and a quarter preview pro, uh, review program after the Paralympic Games. And that, we're only talking 1992 when that happened. So, so we'll probably come on to some of the later things that we've achieved. But, but then to where we are now is a fantastic journey as well, which I've been privileged to be part of. So eventually I did Barcelona 92. I did uh, Atlanta 96. And I then came back out of retirement for um, Sydney 2000 because I was getting a bit old then. And, and, and I was doing other things. I was doing triathlon then because I didn't, I, I was getting bored with swimming. So I came out of retirement because they wanted me to be part of a relay squad, made the team. I got uh, the old crappy silver medal there. Um, but, but hey, that's, I came away with uh, three silvers and two bronze over the three games. So I'm, I'm very, very uh, pleased with that. And, and lots of records and lots of other world titles and things. So I, I'm not blase, but they're the past. You're only as good as your next performance. They, they just prepare you for the future. I, I, I'm very proud, but, but uh, to me, it's about what do I do next? Well, out with the pool is what really um, I really want to hear about as well. I mean, what you achieved... In the pool is is, is phenomenal. Um, it's it's amazing to hear about you know how many high level games that you took part in over a long period of time as well to come out of retirement in two thousand. Um, that, that's 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 very impressive. You went on to to hold some really pivotal roles. Um, you you became a, a national performance director and the chairman um, at another stage of uh, para swimming um, and the British Paralympic Association. Can you tell me how you got involved with these roles and tell me a bit about what, 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 you, what, what you got involved in during that time in those positions? OK, so prior to um, Atlanta and up to Atlanta 1996, um, um, disability swimming was coordinated, organised and run by um, the uh, British Disabled Swim Squad. It was it was it was a charity. We, we weren't involved with the local governing body like British Swimming and, and Swim England. Uh, I actually rang them up when I first wanted to get involved in swimming as, as a disabled athlete. And I said, um, I'm, I'm disabled. I'm, I'm not a bad swimmer. I'm interested in, in this disability swimming. And they turned around and said, well, we don't do that. That's, that's, the, that, that's disability, not us. So, so on that day, something triggered me to say, this, is, this in the future has to change. Little did I know what part I'd be as part of that change. So, '96 was 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 uh, uh, BSSAD uh, was the swim squad, uh, and then uh, after that, British Swimming took responsibility, and and they asked me if I would get involved in helping them write their first plan um, to get some lottery funding. So I I as a volunteer uh, helped them write their first plan to get funding from UK Sport. So that was back in '97. So they got funding, and in 1998, I jumped ship from a very uh, good job within local authority as a sports development officer for both swimming and disability sport, and also a pension, a steady income. And, and I went home and told my wife that I, I've seen a job I fancy where it's, uh, <laughs> it'll be a one-year contract, less money than what we're on and no pension. So I took the risk. And again, that's another lesson that you learn over the years that that sometimes you need to take that leap of faith. And 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 from that, 
that that pure opportunity to take the risk, I ended up becoming the national performance director for the Paralympic swimming team. So the Paralympic swimming team that you see now that went to Tokyo, I'm not involved now there. Now I was I was there from 98 to 2013. Um, they I was I was part of establishing that program. I was one of the founders of making that whole system work. So I'm very proud of that. National performance director taking teams to, to Paralympic Games and World Championships. And then again, I was asked if I would consider being the chairman of the British Paralympic Association um, because they wanted somebody different in the membership and, and I had to be challenged. So I had to challenge the incumbent chairman, which was not easy. That's not an easy thing to do. Um, but I did and I was elected and, and I was there to effect change. So uh, the British Paralympic Association, prior, we came away from Beijing in 2008 um, in a good position, but not brilliant. And then leading into London 2012. So I was there as the, the, the chairman for eight years and they were financially more secure when I'd finished. And we, we, we had to be part of the London 2012. So I was on the board of the organising committee of London 2012. So I changed the whole structure and governance of British Paralympic Association to be fit for purpose. I learned a lot from London 2012 and, and, and it was just a fabulous opportunity. Not so much whilst it was a privilege to be head of delegation of the British team, um, uh, uh, the Paralympic team that went out there. Uh, it, it, I didn't need to do that for me because I've been to numerous games as an athlete. So I didn't need to go as an administrator and think about, but it was about putting things right for the athletes. Like remember me saying that, that there was only an hour and a quarter after Barcelona, 1992. Uh, and also when I went to Barcelona, 1992, I was selected and also I had to pay. So when I became chairman, I said, uh, this has got to change. Things have to change. So we were more financially better. We, we, we had a, a fantastic sponsorship deal with, with kit providers that gave the athletes the same kit that they have at the Olympic Games. Uh, so all these sorts of things we put in place. But also the key for me was I was on the board of London 2012 when the decision was made to appoint Channel 4 as the host broadcaster for London 2012. Now, that was a brave decision because they'd never covered, covered disability sport. BBC had. They lost it. Channel 4 came in. And, and, and to be honest, I had some challenging times with the membership and the sports because they, they said, well, what's Channel 4 going to do? Because we trust the BBC. And, and I said, well, let's, let's judge them after London 2012. Now, that, the way Channel 4 did it and what they do now um, is the envy of every other Paralympic nation around the world. So uh, whilst I didn't make the decision, I was party to that decision and also influencing how Channel 4 would work. So for me, that, that's a great consequence and impact of the games, host games, that the world have benefited from, not just the UK. Absolutely, absolutely. What gives you more self-satisfaction? Achieving medals yourself or what you've achieved to open doors for many other Paralympians out there? Opening doors and influencing. The medals are fantastic. What the medals have done and, and me participating is that, one, it's given me self-belief and the confidence to go on and do other things. I've learned so much. Without that, it wouldn't have been the stepping stone to the other things. But, for example, um, Beijing 2008, um, I was invited. I was, I was also the chairman of the 
International Federation for Disability Swimming then in 2008 at the Paralympic Games. I was invited by the Chinese uh, delegation uh, to come and meet somebody. I thought, hey, what are we doing? Have we disqualified a Chinese athlete? And I'm in trouble. But no, uh, they wanted me to meet a young blind swimmer, 16 years of age. And um, I'll never forget the day we, we sat there and, and we were talking away and uh, he, he thanked me. And I, and I said, well, why are you thanking me? I said, you just smashed all my records. I says, and, and you're an absolute fabulous swimmer. And he says, well, at the age of nine, he was institutionalized in a center. And then Beijing with a host nation. And he got the opportunity to come out of being institutionalized, to being in an environment where he was, he, he was actually supported because he was a good swimmer. But also what he said that what, what I've done and demonstrated as a totally blind person gave him belief that he could go on and do the same. And there's lots of different things, like not just me, but lots of para-athletes have had that impact on other young uh, disabled individuals around the world so it, it, that to me is 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 the I don't like the word legacy it's the impact of the games and this great movement uh, that's around Paralympic sport where does Paralympic sport now I mean you've got you've gone through decades of it um, as a as an athlete and as an administrator where, where would you say it is now compared to where it was 10 15 20 years ago oh it, it's 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 more of a household known. It's it's and and this is this is the terminology that some of our athletes use. So please, this is this is something that not to worry about. We're not a freak show anymore because we know that we were seen as oh, it's a bit of a freak show. Look at these people with no limbs doing this, that, and the other, and and people were looking at our disability rather than our ability. Now we we are on parallel terms that's why it's called the Paralympic Games because it's parallel to the Olympic Games um, we are respected we know that we have to work hard but also people that observe also uh, know that we have to work hard and and some of the sports and the techniques that's used and how the individuals have had to adapt those techniques is absolutely phenomenal but not only that it gives it gives uh, pride to them, but also it gives a platform for the world because this is the third the Paralympic Games are the third largest sporting event in the world, and and it's the only platform in the world where the whole uh, disability community can come together, but also showcase what abilities we have. Now there are some. Uh, um, individuals out there that say that well i'll never be a a, a, a paralympian and you, you don't you can't expect every disabled person to be as good as you no we can't i'm i'm a pretty good swimmer have been still am for my age and i'm blind i'm a pretty good cyclist on a tandem right but i'm absolutely rubbish at running but i still do it so that you can still participate in things regardless. You will find that there will be our elite athletes out there that are phenomenally good at what sport they do, but you'll find that you are better than them in some of the sports you do. So that's the key here. It's that, it's that opportunity. A, to, question to then, a question then, like that's interesting you say that. Not every person with a disability who takes up sport is going to get to the, to the Paralympics. That, that, that's just like every person that takes up any sport um, it, it's, they're not all going to get to, to the no. top level. Is, no. there a, is there a lot of, um, is there enough out there 
for disabled disabled sports people to to be able to go? Is there enough clubs across the across the board in the UK? They, 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 there are no. There, there will never be enough clubs like this. Like for example, I bet you I bet you there's there's not enough uh, judo clubs in the country, regardless of whether you're disabled or not. There, there won't be enough taekwondo clubs. So so there's never enough clubs per se. But where the challenge is for us is that 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 sometimes we need a little bit more time and patience and specificity to bridge the gap for us to adapt to the sport. And not all the clubs out there, they fear the unknown. They don't think they have the skills to do it, but they do. Adapting is easier than you think. But also, um, we, we try to try to provide opportunities across different sectors. So the, the, the elite performance sector is pretty good. Um, the club sector is pretty good, but there's that there's that little bridging gap from from starting to participate in a sport to then what we call in the middle range, where you might need a good club that might be either integrated or what I call designated. I don't like the word. Uh, uh, well, distinctive is better. I don't like it to be a disability club. It's just distinctive. Just happens the way it works. So there's never enough, regardless of what sport you're in. But but. It's getting better. I think the key here is that the knowledge and the awareness of the coaching community and the sporting community is more opening and welcoming to individuals with a disability to come along and participate. Because that's the key is participation first. Let's not worry about becoming elite. It's it's about having a go. I was I was fortunate and privileged that I, I was I was able to swim from a young age and I had a very good coach as a young age that gave me all the skills. So I didn't have to learn the skills as a blind person. I just had to learn how to, well, relearn how to become an athlete again. Interesting, really interesting. And good to hear that there, there is participation, um, more of it than there once was. And, and hopefully long may that continue and we have more and more. Um, I, I mean, I don't, it's going to be something that I'm going to start in, finding out more about in Scotland, um, about how much that actually is. Uh, out there for people from a disability background to go into. Something I wanted to ask you also about was discrimination. Um, I've recently been a, a player who's who's spoken out about um, institutional racism in cricket, um, but discrimination goes across across the board, whether it's gender, whether it's um, disability. But I wanted to ask you about discrimination um, within uh, disability and sport. What what's it like? What kind of challenges are faced, and is it is it something that's improving? It, it is improving, but it's it's still there, and it's always going to be there. I, I I don't think we will ever ever stamp out discrimination it completely ever, because I I just it's just it's one of those things. I've thought about this a lot actually uh, around the cricket stuff and and I and I read the football stuff and everything else because because the 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 uh, Different communities have different opportunities to, to raise concerns and highlight the fact that, that we're, we're just the same as everybody else. We, tickle as we laugh, cut as we bleed. We all have to eat and we all have to do these things from the other end. So for me, uh, it, it, I, I get frustrated when, when people are discriminated against. And, and, and it seems to be because you think about it, even now, if you go and listen to kids playing in the playground, Right. They can all be the same age. They can all have the same background. And, and they might all be from one ethnicity, but they'll be discriminated against each other. 
in some way, shape, or form. So I don't think we'll have a summit. What we've got to what we've got to get to is that that we need to be aware that we are all equal, that we're all on this earth for the same reason, and that's to be the best we can and do the best we can in our own lives. And eventually we're all going to pass away. So we've got to find that happy man. But in the disability community, there is a stigma and there is discrimination. I've had it, I've experienced it, even to this day, even now. I'm, 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 I'm 64 years of age. I've been blind for a long time now, but I still, I still get it. Um, I don't get angry about it anymore. Um, I just try and educate. Uh, um, so for me, I'm, I'm very pleased that there are platforms out there where discrimination needs to be highlighted, but we need to find a mechanism to say, guys, what's what? Like, for example, um, I'd love every single interview panel in the world to have a blind person on it. Because it wouldn't matter then what clothes they're wearing, what hairstyle they've got, or what, how good their presentation is. You'll be evaluating the person which is important. And that, that, that means a lot to me because, because I'm just, I get so frustrated because I've, uh, I've worked with athletes from all around the world and, and, and it, and it really does annoy me when, when I, when I, when I see the challenges of some of our athletes, one, because of their ethnic background, two, because of their color, then three, they have a disability. I'm an old stale white male with a disability. Um, and I haven't experienced some of the things they have. And it's horrendous. And I, and I, I want to get angry. But for me, it's about how do we how do we try and educate these people? Because it's, it, it is a lack of education. Well, not just lack of education. I think it's a lack of patience from some of them, to be honest. Do you think sorry, I get I get angry about it internally, but externally it doesn't help. It's interesting you say that because um, I'm going to come on to you. Your, your son at the moment, um, <laughs> Paul Reddish, OBE. Um, I, should, I, I, I should say you must be. You must first and foremost. You must be very proud. I am. I am. I'm proud of both of my sons. They've they've chosen different 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 uh, sectors and different work. But Paul's Paul's done a great job. He's he, he yeah no he's he loves what he does and he's and he has he has some very positive views uh, and and he, like me he's relentless in what he does and and he won't give in. Well, I can I can vouch for that as well. <laughs> um, I've, uh, and it's interesting what you said there. He can't beat me at swimming anymore, though. He can't beat. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting what you said there about I can get angry internally. Yeah. But externally, it, there's 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 no point, and that's something that Paul has uh, instilled in me. Because <laughs> as, much yeah. as, as much as I've been internally annoyed about some things, I yeah. maybe don't always put it across the best externally. I do my best, but I've yeah. made, some, made some errors. And, you know, Paul's been a, a great mentor for me in that way, just to kind of guide me on, you know, there isn't really anything good to come out of that. You know, it's no. about how we do things moving moving forward, bring people along with us. If, another point is not everybody is always going to see eye to eye with your views, but you no. need to learn to, to bring those people along in the journey as well. Um, so that that really resonates, but I can see where he gets it from now. <laughs> and that, you know, he's 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 obviously been inspired and learned from his father. Yeah. Uh, you know, he, you know, I, I'm proud of him. You must be very, very proud of him. Um, well, it, it's been great, and and like you say, it's that you you mentioned a good point there, the journey. Okay, now 
a lot of people I come across, individuals, whether they're athletes, come to me and say, I want, I want to go to the Paralympic Games and win a gold medal. I said, well, that's the outcome. I said, the journey is more important than the outcome. Because if you get the journey right, you're more likely to get the outcome that you've earned. And that's the key. We've got to get the journey. We have to bring people along on the journey. Uh, at the IPC, we've just, well, at Tokyo, we launched a campaign called We the 15. And it's about highlighting the, the, the human rights under the Convention of Human Pe Convention of Rights for People with Disabilities. Uh, um, and we're working with, with, with a lot of big organizations. Uh, and it's about the 1.2 billion people in the world that have a disability. So they've never had a platform, never had a voice. So the IPC want to highlight it. And we've got a campaign that will run for 10 years. And, it, and it'll take a while to, to get people on board. Like we want to get lots of people on board around. We believe there should be a dis disabled person on every single corporate board in the world. So there's all these sorts of things. And even to the things that, that some people don't get the same opportunities that we get in the UK, like we, 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 get, ac we get access, maybe not as much as we'd like to or as, or as, or, or, or the, uh, as quick as we'd like to. We, 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 get, um, we, we get access to uh, uh, accessible technology or accessible equipment as a disabled person, some nations, they don't have a chance. They don't have a chance, bless them. They, 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 so they, they don't, they've got no chance. So it, it's a human right for them to have that. It's, it's a human right for a person in Africa to be educated, never mind with a disability. So, so there's the sort of things we're trying to put a platform together at the IPC to, to, to bring that to the attention of the world. Uh, and that will happen. And, and it's the same with, 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 with anything, really, with the LGBTQ+, with, with racism. We, we've got to have a platform, but it's got to be the right platform that people all, all want to buy into. Because if we get it wrong, they'll just ignore us. They'll think that they just think that we're, we're beating a drum all the time. And, 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 and unless you change the rhythm or the beat, um, it'll just become background noise very inter very very interesting and, and and i take inspiration from what you're saying because you've already been um, dealing with a lot of challenges that uh, people from a disabled background have faced when it comes to discrimination it's great to hear that the campaign is in place um and i agree that being involved with a, a racism campaign um I, I think we we all need to come together and, and work moving forward um for the betterment of from, for everybody, you mentioned it earlier on, everybody should be equal. There should be yeah. no discrimination. I don't, well, you're right as well. I don't think we'll ever get rid of discrimination completely. No. If we can get close to it, that yeah. would be... Yeah, but, well, you remember, we're mammals, okay? We're mammals. We live, breathe, even, and we need food. and we have, it, you, you've, only got to, you've only got to follow nature. Nature is discriminatory with the wildlife and everything else. So... So it, it is it is inherent in some way, but we've got to minimise that. I, I just want to ask you funny. I, I have a bit of a. Um, I'm just going to throw something at you. It's a little yeah. bit, little bit off field. I hate the terminology protective, protected characteristics. I don't believe in protected characteristics. I don't want to be a protected species. I believe that we're distinctive. We, we don't need protecting. I don't need protecting. The world might need protecting from me if I get hold of them. But I don't need protecting. We're distinctive. 
we are different, but everybody's different. It's just that we're a bit more different, whether that's because of your ethnicity, whether it's because of your religion or whether you have an impairment. We're just different. And, and people out there need to just adapt. Sorry. <laughs> I agree. I agree. It's, um, we should embrace everybody's differences, shouldn't we? It shouldn't yeah. be... It shouldn't be a... You know, it shouldn't cause any shouldn't cause any issues whatsoever. We should just and and if anything, I find it interesting speaking to somebody you know who's had had some of the challenges that you've had, and to hear how you've ad- adapted to that, adjusted your life, and still went on to do some amazing things. I, I I think that's brilliant. I think it's an inspiration to me. I would love to sit and talk to you all day long about these things. <laughs> that's maybe what's what's missing. You know, um, I think people maybe are threatened by these things sometimes and, and don't feel that they can have these types of conversations. So sometimes the elephant in the room, if racism comes up, some people just, oh, can't talk about that. You know, let's 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 move back from that subject. Well, yeah. that sometimes because why can't we talk about it? If we talk about it, it might be healthier. Moving I, forward. I had a we had a we had a very interesting um, uh, the board when I was on the board of the International Parliament Committee, we, we had a. Um, uh, um, we 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 had a workshop as the board. Now remember, we're we're a multicultural board from all around the world. Males, females, uh, wheelchair users, blind, um, from every every region of the world. So we're on a board there, and, and, and we're talking about Latin Americans, with Africans, so e- 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 Europeans, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we 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 had a we had a workshop on um, on. Uh, uh, sexual harassment but it was more than about sexual harassment and one of the things that came out of it is was was two words well two two words that you should always remember wanted and welcomed and if you think about that well it's not wanted and it's not welcome so don't do it when it's a negative content and that's the two things that i always remember from that workshop and it was a fabulous fabulous half a day that i spent on that just and having that discussion um we around the table and very open and i think that's the key here is 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 you've got to be able to have a discussion like i i, I don't do it so much now I'm, I'm at the age now where i don't want to be looking for work but i will always i always do work as a volunteer but but i don't do the the keynote and the the individual coaching as with people as used to as much as i used to but but one of the things I always say to people is, look, I says, with me, you're in a safe environment. You'll be worried about using X or Y terminology. I said, what, I will, what, I, what I'm open to for this session we are doing, this half an hour, I said, we, we are in a safe environment. You can say what you like, but I will pull you up if I think it's inappropriate or it, it's, it, it's not the right terminology. And then I hope you'll never do it again. Whereas some people, and, and this is where we as the disability community have to get better, we sometimes join, jump on somebody not having the right terminology rather than letting them have that terminology, but educating them and re-educating them. That, that's where I come from on all this. But you've got to have a safe environment because if the environment isn't safe, then they will be, they'll be put out to hang. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing wrong with correcting somebody, but like you say, no. if it's in a safe environment, then it's yeah. then it's all good. But I think that's something that people fear the most: the backlash Correct. of saying something wrong and yeah. then 
they are hung out to dry. Um, and that's 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 not a positive for anybody. No, and and with the new modern era and social media, we know that 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 a a three or four words could be the only words that that are. <laughs> that, that they've been exposed to when it's been took completely out of context. So, it, so some really powerful stuff there. You know, if you if you're saying something and you don't feel that it makes somebody feel wanted or welcome, then yeah. don't say it. I think that, that that's really powerful. But also that you need to be prepared to have the difficult conversations sometimes. Yeah. And sometimes yeah. you might say the wrong thing, but if done so in a safe environment, you can get educated and you can be better moving forward. It doesn't have to be that somebody says, you know, uses the wrong terminology and, and that's the end of that person. You know, they can't, they can't learn or be educated or be better. So mm-hmm. it's, um, it's, all, it's all really making me think about things in, a, in an in-depth way. Um, do, you, do you now see... Um, people, you know, I would love to see all of this come together. You know, you've got, you mentioned earlier, you know, you've got now the the Black Lives Matter movement, you've got things in place for LGBT, um, you've mentioned the campaigns that are in place for for people from disability backgrounds. You know, can we all learn from each other? You know, I think that's the next phase, isn't it? It, it, It's right. So this is the first time the disability community have got together, whether you're whether you're hearing impaired, stroke, deaf, whether you're visually impaired or blind, physical impairment, learning disability, all those first time they've all got together on the same platform ever. And that's amazing. So there's going to be some learning opportunities over this. So, so we need to get our act into place and to get that recognition that, 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 that LGBTQ plus have. But, but at some stage, somewhere, somebody's got to sit up and smell the coffee and say, actually, we need to get some of these people around in the same room because there will be some learning opportunities here that are about the whole rather than a piece. And, and that's up to, I, I, I'm going to say it, but it sometimes frustrates me. It's, it's, it's got to happen at governmental level and then down. I because they've got to hear. I was, I was offered an opportunity <laughs> to join a board uh, not too long ago. And I said, uh, why do I need to go and join that board when they'll, they'll be happy to listen to me, but they won't want to hear what I say. So that's my philosophy in life now. I'm, I'm looking at new opportunities, new ventures on different, I, I want to work with on boards and, 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 and where I can influence again. Uh, but I, I, there's there's not many too not too many years left where I can keep doing this because as you get older people think you get uh, stale as well and you're not your brain don't work anymore so I'll have two disadvantages then I'll be, one I'll be blind and two my brain don't work so so I, that's what I want to do is to be able to shape and influence and 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 work with some of the younger community and and and, and getting them to be brave as well because isn't it I don't know what it was like for you at school and things but but also. Where, where does it change? Because I've worked with young kids. I'm talking seven, eight, nine-year-olds. And they're all together. They'll be working together. They'll be the young kid with a disability integrated in their class. And they'll all work with the kid and whatever it is. When does it change? When does that young disabled kid or that young black kid become different to them? At what age does it switch? Because it does at some stage. It does. It does. It's a really good 
really good question. It would be hard to put my finger on exactly what the answer is. Yeah. But you're, so, you're so right. I mean, when I went to nursery as a kid, <laughs> I was around all different types of people. It was, and everybody just integrated. I yeah. think you go into the teenage years and the influences maybe from parents or other peers that you're close to, that seems to change a wee bit of the mindsets. Yeah, yeah. So we, we now need to be working with the generation of eight-year-olds and above because we've lost, we've lost their parents. Yeah, I think it's... Uh, it's if you think about it... it yeah, it's, it's very... It's very hard to change the mindset of people who are a lot later in life and they're quite set in stone. I'm not saying it's impossible, but overall, no. it's, uh, it's, it's, it's difficult to change yeah. a, a large proportion of people's mindsets. Whereas if you change it from, from young, and, mm-hmm. and what I find is the youth can then start to influence the adults and the seniors that, they're, that they rub shoulders with. And slowly but surely, you can change mindsets. And that's what London 2012 did towards disability. It changed people's perceptions and mindsets towards disability. That stigma became different. There was less of it. Yeah. Mr. Reddish, it has been, um, you've got me thinking about lots of different things. (laughs) Um, uh, When I watch this back, I'll probably process more of it um, and, and really, you know, start to, think about things in depth because there's a lot of things you've talked about that I can relate to from a different type of discrimination. Um, and, and I think discrimination exists across the board. And if we can all educate, and, and I think what something we've discussed would be great is to get more of the boards at the top to come together um, and learn from each other. But you're right, it needs to cut filter down from government level. And that's when you can really start um, making changes. Listen, I, I, I would love to meet you in person sometime. Um, I'm down south occasionally, so if I ever make it to Nottingham, it would be great great to meet you. However, you do have a, a, a son in, in Bonnie, Scotland, so if you make yeah, it up... Yeah, no, and, and one of my best mates is, uh, is, is in Paisley. Oh, right, OK, well, just right, just round the corner then. I'm in, <laughs> I'm in yeah. Glasgow, so no, please right. don't, don't hesitate to give me a shout if you're... Uh, yeah. yeah, no, he was, he was my roommate for years as an athlete. He, he was a quadriplegic. Wow. So maybe we I'll, keep it. Maybe, maybe I could talk to him one day. Talk to him about his uh, about his journey. Yeah, no, no. Can he be good? Kenny Keynes. I'll look him up. Kenny yeah, Kane. look him up. Yeah, um, and, and if you want an intro, just let me know. I will do. I will do. It's been inspiring if, to talk to you today. It, my pleasure. And if you want to chat afterwards, anytime, just drop me a note. Say, do you want do you want to just chew the fat, have a chat, or whatever it is? Do you want to explore this? I'm more than happy. It's it's what I do now. It's. It's, it keeps my brain active, but also it, 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 it's good to get cross, cross learnings. Absolutely. I mean, I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot talking to you about uh, the challenges that, that you have faced and other Paralympians have faced. Um, and, it get, and, it's, and it's really good to hear that it's in a healthier state, but we can always get better, can't we? Well, uh, the, the, the world is about continuous improvement. And what we have to remember is that clock face ticks, the old analog clock, the second hand moves. The minute hand moves and the hour hand moves. So time will always move forwards. It never goes backwards. And there's not enough money in the world to buy back the time we've just lost. So we have to learn from it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wise words, sir. Thank you very much for your time today. Um, That's my pleasure. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Good luck with it.